The topics and opinions expressed in the following show are solely those of the hosts and their guests and not those of W4CY Radio, its employees, or affiliates. We make no recommendations or endorsements for radio show programs, services, or products mentioned on air or on our web. No liability, explicit or implied, shall be extended to W4CY Radio, its employees, or affiliates. Any questions or comments should be directed to those show hosts. Thank you for choosing W4CY Radio. Connected Table Live, we are your insatiably curious culinary couple, Melanie Young and David Ransom. Each week we bring you the dynamic people who are front and center and behind the scenes in food, wine, spirits, and hospitality. You can follow us on Twitter, laughing because we just joked about that, Connected Table, Facebook, theconnectedtable.com, and of course our blog, www.theconnectedtable.com. So we got all that out of the way because we have a full, fabulous show. We uh, love to read about wine. We love to drink wine. We love to write about wine. We like to do just about anything when it comes to the pleasures of the vine. David grew up in the business. My dad was an educator for 30 years, so we're pretty solid. And one of the most solid writers that we enjoy reading is Letty Teague, who is the wine columnist at the Wall Street Journal and was uh, the former executive editor of Wine at Food and Wine Magazine, where we first met. She's won numerous James Beard Foundation Journalism Awards, which attests to her prowess at writing about wine. And she's author of three books. The most recent is Wine in Words, which is just a delightful um, collection of wine essays, which I love for the brevity and their to-the-point wittiness. Um, it's just such an incredible read, and we're going to talk about some of the essays she's written. Welcome, Letty. Hey, Melanie, thanks. And thanks for all those exceptionally kind adjectives. <laughs> well, Melanie, Melanie is definitely the queen of adjectives. We all know that. I love all her adjectives. So far, I'm... I'm... <laughs> You've got prowess. So you're staying with us for the next 23 minutes. That's good to hear. Yeah, yeah. I bet she's and, got some really good nouns, too. Yeah. Yes, yeah. That's true, too. Well, welcome to the show. It's so nice to actually Thank have you. you on. We've seen each other a lot over the years and cross paths yeah. on a fairly regular basis, so it's always nice to actually... Um, spend some quality time with I'm you, actually talking about on the air. <laughs> talking about what you love to do and what we all love to do right on the air for everybody. So that's great. Thanks for having me. It's yeah, a pleasure. Yeah. Mm-hmm. One of the first things we want to talk. We love to find out, you know, what gets you got you into the business and what intrigued mm. us is that you actually were in a like a homestay during a student uh, stay in uh, Ireland, studying something completely unrelated, right. and you fell in love with wine. It, it just happened that the father of the family that I lived with, and they were at that point, you know, this is um, um, many years ago now, um, they were hard up for cash, so they had American students come and live with them. And uh, um, Peter Peter Dunn is his name, and he's still the managing director of Mitchell & Son, which was then and still probably is the, the, the most important wine shop in Ireland, um, Dublin and Ireland. And, uh, you know, he just uh, brought wine home and talked about it in, and, I've, in, and let me visit the wine shop and the wine bar, and they had, you know, because in Ireland, and um, unlike the U.S., you could be a wine retailer and an importer and a distributor and have a wine um, a bar. So are we glad? Yeah, are we glad he wasn't a butcher? <laughs> I don't know. I thought butchers are very hot now. But, um, well, that's uh, true. But, you know, and he's. I mean, I'm still. I've, I've. I just met someone yesterday who was in New York, an Irishman who, who was Peter was mentor to. I mean, he's a men, He's been a mentor to so many people in the in the in the world of wine. And you know, oddly enough, I was a, you know, kid from Indiana and turned out to have my wine mentor in Ireland. Yeah. <laughs> so, 
too too funny. Well, you since then your your career, you know, you you did it the real way. You worked like every low level job, moving your way through retail <laughs> and restaurant, and the worst of all PR to get yeah, to where you are. The real way, uh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> but you learn a lot that way. You know, you learn you the do. business. You learn you really how do. things work. You know, the back, the behind the scenes stuff. You know. Well, there's nothing there's nothing more important, I think, than learning it from the ground up, uh, as opposed to just being handed a a dossier as you walk in the room. Learning right. it, learning it, learning yeah. it the way you did, and and the way I did when my when my family bought a winery and I got thrown into the church. Uh, so you had the real physical, the, the physical labor aspect of it. All and, of that yeah. twenty hour twenty yeah. hour days crushing grapes and all that good stuff. So yeah, right. And but, you ran um, away from that. <laughs> well, we all we all did as, so. We all did as a family when we realized yeah. there, was really, there was no money in it. But that's a different story right. altogether. Yeah, but, yeah, it's an on romantic so, side. So you actually um, were in the PR business beforehand as well, and you kind of decided to make a jump to writing because writing was one of the things that you love to do and, and whatnot. Right. And, and right. although a lot of people don't think that PR is writing, PR definitely is a lot of writing. So oh, absolutely. That, you know, so I'll hold absolutely. my <laughs> <laughs> You can't be a good publicist and not be a good writer. Yeah, and when I made the jump, it was now um, 20 years ago, which is, you know, it tells you something that, you know, it, it was something that people said, no, you can never go that way. You know, you can never jump from PR to, uh, um, uh, you know, to, to journalism. But, you know, I also took an enormous cut in pay. So <laughs> that, yeah. that helped the way. Um, and, you know, I just Thought, you know, and then I thought of all these famous people that had done the same thing. Like I think uh, um, you look at all the old New Yorker writers. You know, uh, James Thurber was in PR. Like you know, all these wonderful writers. And oh, yeah. yes, it's very much the same skill. And and I have because I was in that business, I have tremendous respect for for a good publicist. I know how much work there goes into you know. Uh, um, uh, you know, uh, writing a good press release. You know, you know, knowing how the business works. You know, so and making, um, and making sure that when you're asking questions, the answers are there for you and things like that. Obviously, right. Right. Uh, right. So much of that. So much of that is so key to writing an article and getting the information you need to do so. Um, having right. somebody that you can count on, like a good publicist, is obviously a is a huge. Yeah, a good publicist that. is really undersung. I think you know, in in not in just the world of wine, but in in general, you know, maybe because there there's so many. It's you know, it's like they're bad. They're bad writers and they're bad publicists. That you know, it should never shadow the fact that there's some really super good ones. You know, right. Well, speaking right. of good writers, um, mm. you know, you've uh, you mentioned in wine and words a couple of things we want to touch on. You you mentioned um, and referred to Alexis Bespaloff, who mm-hmm. it was a, a wonderful gentleman and writer. And I, what I loved is you mentioned him a couple of times in the book um, because he also had you know perfected the art of the spit, the Barishnikov right. with the bucket. <laughs> So who are some of your other writers that uh, you found to be either a mentor or who you looked up to when you were moving up in your own career? Right. So, you know, Gerald Asher was probably my first, um, you know, uh, famously first a merchant, you know, an English uh, wine merchant, and then yeah. um, moved to uh, the States, and then, of course, was the columnist for the, the for Gourmet Magazine for years and years. But what most people don't know is that he was also president of a wine company um, named called Mosswood Wine that I worked for um, about a year. And um, every time I've seen Gerald, he's so, he like, yeah, yeah, I know you used to work for me. I was like a salesperson in training. I, um, I was actually fired from that job because I couldn't type. Um, they said, you know, we, I was like inputting sales orders. That's what sales trainees did. And, but they gave me a cake and they said, we really like you. You just, you're a terrible typist. So <laughs> I'm sorry we have to fire you. So, um, but uh, he's, he's Daryl is sick of me telling that story, but he's a wonderful writer and I loved mm-hmm. his gourmet, you know, columns. Alexis Lachine, of course, you know, who I never knew, but, you know, wrote the definitive, um, you know, Encyclopedia of Wine. Kermit Lynch, you know, his adventures on the wine route, you know, just mm-hmm. absolutely fantastic. And, and, you know, I also feel like retailers, like 
like I've learned so much from like Roberta Morel, you know, one of my very, you know, my first uh, um, retail wine boss. I mean, people that are, that are in the retail business, I, I have something I and, and, I could rattle off a bunch of names, you know, who are current in, in the in the business today because I feel like, you know, so many years, and I've written a column about that in the journal. They get so much, you know, press and so much attention. But wine merchants, you know, the the really gifted ones and the really, you know, uh, um, uh, passionate ones get short shrift. I think because it's not a very glamorous thing, you know, to to own a you know a wine shop. But they've I've I've been introduced to so many terrific wines by by great merchants whose you know palates I trust. That you know I I also they're you know. Well, you're my heroes for sure. Yeah. Uh, agreed, and you make it. You make a really valid point too. Um, you know, when you think of a sommelier, when you walk into a restaurant and say, right. "This is what I've decided I want to eat. What wine would go right. best with that?" You're relying right. on their expertise and their knowledge to tell you, to tell you what to have that evening. A retailer right. is exactly the same thing. When you walk into a retail shop and say, "You know, what's good? What's what's new? What can I? What you know? What's different?" Or you know, I'm thinking of having a dinner party and I'm cooking this. What would you suggest? You know, you're relying on their expertise as well, and they right. do a lot of. Right. They do a lot of learning outside the store mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. to and inside the store as well to yeah. make sure that what they're telling their customers is the right thing so those customers will come right. back. Right. So you do make a And they probably have that. a lot more wine to, to you know right. um uh, you know rifle through their you know head to think about, you know, what to recommend to you as well. So yeah. um, well, that's that's true. Yeah. And speaking yeah. of retailers, you know, I, I find it's really important to lean on the retailer to have them recommend wines that you may not try. And and one of the things mm-hmm. that you um one of your essays in Wine and Words is uh you're not a big fan of the drink what you like approach to wine right yeah i'm very anti drink what you like because i like drink what you like just means drink what you already know you know and then and yeah. what's the adventure in that and and certainly a if you're going to learn about wine but b if you're really going to to you know um uh understand wine uh, well that's the same thing sorry and you would be the same um but you know to really appreciate it and, and to get a depth of understanding and also just to increase your your pleasure you know um uh, uh you know the landscape of pleasure. You know, drink as much as you as much as you possibly can that you don't know and you have no idea if you're going to like. You know, drink to be surprised and shocked and amazed and maybe, you know, horrified. But, you know, that's uh I don't know, it'd be like reading the same if you only read Ernest Hemingway, you know, um, novels for your whole life. You know, you might like really short sentences, but <laughs> there's a lot of other literature out there. We're big fans of stepping out of the wine comfort zone and, and we, we make a habit of doing it and we love going to the Burden in New York. So we get to go to all these amazing tastings to try wines we've never heard of. Right. But now there's one um, variety that you're really not a fan of, even though you've tried. Oh. <laughs> Tell us about that. Oh, that would be Pinotage. I know, I know. I got so many, um, you know, and I try, I did a column on, on uh, uh, Pinotage a couple of years ago. I was going to say I got so many hate letters from, um, perhaps not surprisingly, from South African winemakers. And South African wine writers, this one guy was, you know, basically said, what do you think ever comes to South, America, you know, South Africa, you know, <laughs> Um, We've got her name um, in immigration. She dot, won't get dot, in. Dot, yeah. <laughs> Bam. This isn't exactly good press relations, but, um, you know, just the grape itself. And I don't know if you guys are fans and you're not, you know, you're being polite and listening to this, but I just feel like, you know, I've, I've had so many, uh, you know, I'm trying to think of all the really hideous adjectives. To, to attach to that grape, you know, it's sort of it, it's a, it's the gamut from burnt rubber to sort of you know dead animal skin to you know it just I mean it's just it's a it's a wine that I, I think is is a very, it's just such a strange construct to begin with you know that yeah. you would the the, the Cinso and Pinot Noir I mean right. who would ever think to put those two grapes together you know well, only so. that 
Somebody, crazy somebody, South African. You know. somebody, you go a long way somebody obviously did. But, you know, coming growing up in the New York wine business like yeah. I did, mm-hmm. we have all kinds of funky grapes that we work with in New York State, mm-hmm. too, mm-hmm. you know, that are French-American hybrids. So I kind of understand where they were right. coming from when they were trying to figure out what to plant down there. Right. But um, obviously, you know, some are better they than had others. So many, but it was such a challenge because you, it was the question of the, the cold, you know, and, and what, what grapes were hardy enough. So, that, I mean, right. that makes sense that maybe they had to choose, you know, um, non, you know, they had to choose Labrusca grapes. But in South Africa, I think other things like, now they're you know, Shiraz does very well. You know, there's right. lots of other possibilities. It didn't have to be Pinot Tosh. No, and they don't, and, and you're <laughs> no, right, they, they, don't, away, they don't, so. and they don't have the climate challenges that we have in New York right, or, right. or Michigan. Right, they have no excuse for Pinot Tosh. Like <laughs> anyway, moving on. Speaking of which, so we can so we can recover from this. Why don't we talk about what what grapes turn you on and what you do love, and and right. uh, and what and what's kind of hitting your fancy now. Yeah, you know, that's a much longer and a much uh, uh, list, and, and certainly I'm much happier to talk about. Right now, I'm, I'm, I'm really thinking a lot about Chenin Blanc um, for a variety of reasons. First of all, I just think Chenin is, is so undersung. It's like it has all the virtues of Riesling and, it's, and, and sort of none of the, you know, the, the bad baggage. I mean, it's, it can be so many different styles. You know, it's the grape of the Loire, but it's grown all over you know, the world. It can be dry. It can be sweet. South Africa. Sparkly. Including South, South Africa. Africa. South yeah. Africa, right. Where they would, of course, in South Africans, they have to call it Steen, you know, Steen. So... <laughs> Um, but you know, Long Island, you know, Pominock, you know, uh, there's even Shenan in Connecticut. Uh, so I, I just love Shenan. I love, I love obscure or semi-obscure, you know, Italian um, uh, red grapes like Schiava and Lagrine, which I think are just great, you know, right now, especially in this weather. You know, like really great acidity, really, you know, bright, snappy, you know, fresh fruit. I love Müller Thurgau, you know, another kind of undersung, um, mm-hmm. um, you know, great variety that does really well in, in northern climates, you know, in, in Austria and Germany. And yes, I just like there's so much out there. You know, that's just a, a very short list. But well, you know, that, that's yeah. really one of the most interesting things, things about being in the wine business now, especially as a writer, is that mm-hmm. there's so much there's so much more to choose from than there used right. to be uh, because that's the right. because the wine world has gotten so much more global. And, mm-hmm. Absolutely. And, so we're allowed to learn and talk about things that we never would have a known existed before because the right. Uh, but also, it wouldn't have been on our radar even if it, even if we had known about it because they they weren't popular. But now they are right. popular, right? And, uh, and, and people want to know about them too. You know, there yeah, is a, a real you know hunger for for you know, knowledge beyond and, and and wines beyond. You know, um, yeah. uh, classic regions and the and the and the six basic grapes. Yeah. Maybe yeah. seven. Maybe maybe seven. Well, we're interested in the wines of Eastern Europe. We're we're waiting to try like Eastern Europe because a we've never been and b Uh we keep getting invitations to things. I mean, what's what's great is that there's so much emerging as as financing um, becomes available to countries that have kind of lay quiet for a while. Right, absolutely, absolutely. You know, so much, I mean, that was actually one of the very first things I wrote for the Wall Street Journal. It was, it was a, a column that I wrote even before it was on staff. Um, you know, about the in Croatia and Yugoslavia and, and Hungary. You know, for exactly the reason you said, Melanie. You know, that that, that you know, there's outside investment and also you know inside investment too. Um, well, that you know. that and and you know, it's there's such interesting regions because they've been making wine for so long. Most of right. them, mm-hmm. you know, right. really, really the cradle of winemaking in the world comes from that region for the most part right. and they're and they're but they've been but they were blocked off for so long by communism and things like that and they're really kind of just getting their feet wet again and really starting to make that outward push and the wines and the modernization that they've gone through it's all it's all so interesting to learn about 
out and taste the wines. It is. It is. There's even, you know, there's even a, um, a guy that, uh, based in Connecticut who has his whole um, uh, focus on his import and distrib- distribution company are wines from Moravia, you know? Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. Which I love, you know? Who would have thought that would have been possible? It probably wouldn't have been possible 10 years ago. But, no. well, most people don't even know where Moravia is. But, you know, you people talked about Spain as the lumbering giant for so long when it's, it, it, it started making its progress actually back in the late 80s it did did you say and lumbering now, giant I love no, that but, you know there could be some of these <laughs> what you always say sleeping giant I think you're absolutely right it is kind of a lumbering giant <laughs> yeah well I'm, I'm thinking you know. <laughs> <laughs> no, that's well, you know, it is, every, you know, Spain should be more, f- further along in, in a way, you know, than, than, it, than it has, because there's oh. been a renaissance of Spanish wine going on for some time. So I think well, the lumbering yeah. really captures and, it. And, you know, and, and, they, and, they, and they keep coming up with new ideas, too. You know, there's yeah, 70 DOs, yeah. more than 70 DOs now in Spain. So keep just keeping track of it all is just a massive... Continual, continual discovery. <laughs> yeah, I... I I was in Spain in January, you know, traveling around with an importer, just going to, to some brand new and pending DOs. And yeah, there's a lot of excitement. But it's like, don't you think like that because so we've been, we've been waiting for things to, you know, Spanish wines to really break out, but then you go to stores and, and everyone thinks of Spanish wines as those, those inexpensive, you know, they're, yeah. they're in, sort of relegated to the, you know, the 7 to $12 section, which doesn't seem yeah. fair to me because there's so much, you know, there's so much serious winemaking. There's so, there's so many talented winemakers there. It makes me a little well, you know, sad. It, and a Rioja, even Rioja is you know, sort of undervalued and overlooked. You know? Yeah, and, so, and, yeah. and, and, and even Rioja, there's some wonderful efforts going on, too. Absolutely. I think the Spanish, I mean, they have their marketers, but they're also a bit reticent, you know. Um, mm-hmm. Some of the best wine still stays in Spain, um, which is a shame because it's, it's terrific. Um, yeah. You know, so why is it that <laughs> so many producers are making wines for women that are pretty, pretty awful? <laughs> when we have all the what money to spend. It's really easy because women are really stupid and all you have to do is put like a pink label on it and they'll say, hey, that's great. Or a dress, um, which actually I do know some women that think that way. Um, they're really smart women, but somehow there's something about wine that... You know, they're just like, oh, my God, this is really intimidating. But, hey, this has a pretty label. Or it has, like, a woman. Or, or you know, I think, the one wine need a bitch. Oh, hey, that's a great, it's a pink label, of course. And it's like, uh, um, oh, that's a meant to apply, you know, uh, inspire, uh, uh, you know, um, women to want to buy that. Um, that I certainly don't understand. But, like, the phenomenon of the little black dress wines or the, mm-hmm. um, uh, what are those, are they, mommy's time out. You know, I think, where are the where are the corresponding stupid wines for men? I want there to be, you know, equal time. I think, you know, like I read my book. I want you know channel changer Chardonnay, and you know, well, we, like, like, you know we have, wine. Well, we have we have we have all the we have all the hunting wines, which is you know duck, yeah. duck horn, and you have, and that, frog you have the fat bastard wine too. Fat bastard, as <laughs> opposed to farty bastard. Smoking, yeah, they're there. Smoking loon. You know, we all just sit in our blinds all day and drink yeah. that stuff. Is smoking loon a male uh, wine? Is that do you think that's you you as a as a man you identify with? Well, I mean, anything you know anything that's got a dog or a flying something right. flying on the cover, we're going to equip. Oh, Guys, line. Okay, yeah. mm-hmm. anyway. good to know. I know you talk about the, the good to the bad of blind tasting some wine words, but it sure would be interesting to do a, a challenge of the sexes about a bottle of the sexes with women mm-hmm. doing blind tasting and men to see who fared better. I don't know if that's a really I did I, that, I, Melanie, with my fellow staffers at the journal. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. I'll have to send you. This is maybe a couple of years ago, and, and you know, uh, organized with you know half male editors and half female editors, and um, you know, it was not what you would expect. Uh, 
uh, I'll have to say dot, dot, dot and send you the, the column, but it was you know, the women were using manly words and preferring manly wines. And, you know, the men, I mean, you know, these were not, these were not, uh, you know, nobody, you know, and, and everyone was like very much, you know, they were, they were macho guys and, and, you know, real, you know, so I feel like all of that is just, it's, it's individual vocabulary and individual taste, you know, and, and so little of it really has to do with sex, you know, um, and I think that that's, that's what annoys me the most, you know, about marketers, because it's not true. You know, women, I know plenty of really smart, discerning women. <laughs> they, don't, they don't drink mommy's time out. <laughs> I agree. And you know what? Wine, wine should not be stereotyped. Different kinds of wine and different wine drinkers should not be stereotyped. We should just throw it out and let everybody experiment and not, you know, put anybody in a box. Right. Wine in a box. Unless they're a peanutage drinker, in which case they deserve <laughs> well, to be in that box. Then we, can, <laughs> then we can throw them and the box out. <laughs> Very far away. Very but they have good Chenin Blanc down there. <laughs> and it's they pretty. do. They should, I know they pretty. should be making more of it, and, and they're making less of it, oddly enough. Um, but uh, I think they you are know, at least making more Shiraz. <laughs> you know what I, I find funny about this whole part of this conversation is the fact that there's so many women, not only that buy wine, but are also involved in the wine business at many yeah, levels. Absolutely. You know, Right. Best, some of the best winemakers I know are women. Some of the, right. you know, the people that are driving ambassadorships within the wine industry and things like that are a lot of them are women as well. There's, you know, exactly. there's a huge force of women that are in the industry yeah. at very high levels. Right, uh, right. But they don't they don't do that thing where men do. You know, I, I mean, there aren't there aren't as many women collectors. You know, there aren't women. You know, that that um, get onto chat boards and brag about the wines that they have. I mean, you go on you know the forums, you see very few women. You know, women are just not that. Um, you know, so they're not. You know, I feel like I mean, when I do tastings, women. You know, and you and you just I say, oh, you know, I find this this wine has red cherries, or you know, it has really bright fruit, or like, and a woman will always say. Yeah, yeah, I get, I get that too. Whereas a man would be like, no, it's not. <laughs> like men are, are so much more willing to sort of, you know, sort of throw themselves. And here I, I'm, here I am speaking in sexist terms, but I feel like just on a limited, you know, basis of observation of you know people in my circle and in, in you know the next remove, it's like you know women are, are tend to be a little bit more conciliatory, you know, and men t- sure. tend to be a little more certain and I think that when you're certain and that's about anything not just fine you tend to be a little bit more influential than someone that's going to say oh you're right okay you know women want everyone to like get along you know be happy enjoy themselves well that's (laughs) why it's nice to have a voice like yours um, at a paper like (laughs) the Wall Street Journal which many men and women read Mm -hmm. um, to to get out there and, and, and really it's a very straightforward voice because a lot of the right. wine writers who are men tend to be one way and women tend to be another way. If you read them, right. if you lurk around the blogs and, and tweets like you do and I do. Um, the oh, voice no, I had a so tweet, had a whole conversation you're tweeting. You, you have to tell me what that's like. <laughs> I've tweeted four times. <laughs> Letty <laughs> lurks. Letty lurks. She reads what people do, but she doesn't comment. Just know that. It's, it's in mine with words. It's in this, it's in this book. <laughs> well, Wine and word. Yeah. It's just another, um, another thing. You know, we only we have a couple of minutes left, and I'd love mm-hmm. to get because uh, I know you have to catch a train or a plane or something like that. And you're on the <laughs> Some road. Moving object. Yeah. You're moving. Just, uh, hopefully not through the Lincoln Tunnel. That's all you're I going somewhere. But yeah. um, I'd love to. I'd love to kind of get an idea from you in the few minutes that we have left. Um, mm-hmm. Who are some of your 
kind of favorite winemakers these days? Who's making adventurous stuff that uh, you really think is oh, kind of, God. really kind of hitting oh, the mark? David, that's such a, I mean, that's like, you know, that's like my favorite wine. I mean, that's a huge question. You, as you, <laughs> as you yourself just said, that's a very irresponsible question. There's so much talent out there. Well, it's almost like I could just refer you to all the columns that I've written recently, yeah. um, you know, and, and say, because you know what? I mean, that, that is absolutely the best part. And, you know, I'm going to, I'm going to be like that, in, that interviewee that refuses to answer your question <laughs> because, oh. and say, instead people, um, uh, you know, should, should discover those people because there's so much talent out there. You know, it's, 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 the wine world is crazy with talent right now and in all parts of the, the world. There's so much interesting wine in every, you know, in every little realm. Um, so I, I admire the, I, I admire winemakers that, uh, um, don't do, you know, don't do what is expected of them and don't do, you know, um, uh, just, you know, do make wine to a formula or I know this isn't really satisfying to you. Um, to give you, well, you know what? Um, it it, it kind of goes like this. If you can't drink the wine you love, love the wine you're with. <laughs> but I want to drink. I, I want to only drink. Well, the, I, the wines that I don't love, I will spit out. But love the wine that you have with you if it's good and, and, and be open to experimenting. There you go. Yeah. But as long as you're, you're, you're drinking widely and often, I think you're, you're safe. <laughs> yeah, well, wine is one and love affair yeah. where it's okay to drink around. And shop around. <laughs> Drinking so, around. Well, I hope you're doing a lot of that. <laughs> we try. Well, we, we try. <laughs> Part of the hazards of the profession, I think. So the oh. book is Wine and Words. It's by Rizzoli. It's out. It's really a great read. It's nice. It feels good. It's a hardcover with nice illustrations. It's by Letty Teague, and we're so happy you could join us today. Thanks so much. I had a great time chatting with you guys. <laughs> Lots of fun and, and safe travels to you. you We'll, we'll talk Great. to you soon. And folks, you can listen to, you can read Letty every week in the Wall Street Journal. So pretty easy twice to find. Twice a week. Twice, twice a week in the Wall Street <laughs> yeah. Journal. Right. That's right. Twice a week, yeah. Twice a week. Constantly. Right. Right. Letty, thanks always. again, guys. Letty, thanks, you. <laughs> thanks so much, and we hope to see you again soon. I hope so, too. Thanks. All right. Bye. Take care now. Folks, you are listening to David Ransom and Melanie Young on the Connected Table Live. You can follow us on at Connected Table on Twitter and the Connected Table on Facebook. And also listen to us, Evergreen, on iHeartRadio, where all our shows are downloadable and and you can listen to them uh, either on your iPhone or your Samsung or whatever whatever you're carrying around these days. It's great to pick up the iHeart app and listen to our show anytime you want uh, and our entire archive is there. And like it and share it. Like it and share it. That's we true. want to have all of you listening. David, well, you want to intro our next guest? I will. We're actually going to switch gears a little bit now and go from wine to spirits and uh, introduce uh, a friend of ours who we've known for a long time, uh, based out in Las Vegas. His, his moniker is the Modern Mixologist, and his name is Tony Abu Ghanim. And uh, he is really one of probably the most pioneering pioneering bar professionals out there in the world today. He's made dozens of national TV appearances. He's the author of two books. Um, He's got a set of DVDs all about making cocktails and classic contemporary cocktails. And uh, he's just one of the authorities in the wine, I'm sorry, in the spirits business and and in the bar business and cocktail business. And we're thrilled to have Tony on our show for the first time. I'm going to note also that his career has spanned the highlights of uh, San Francisco at the Harry Denton Starlight Lounge, where he created the iconic cocktail cable car of Las Vegas, where he developed the bar program at Wynn Resorts, bar, uh, which is the Wynn Casino Resort in Bellagio. His signature cocktails, he's, he's kind of like the author of signature cocktails, and we're going to ask him how he creates and develops cocktails. The most notable one is the cable car, 
which I mentioned, it's probably on like a gazillion bar menus around the country and probably the world. Um, he also created uh, Monkey Shine, The Wizard, and The Sunsplash. We'll be getting him on soon. Um, he recently came back from Peru, and we want to hear about that trip. He has a line of tagware, incredible barware that you can buy on his website, www.themodernmixologist.com. It is everything that you need, uh, and in fact, more than you need, because there's different muddlers and strainers, and I don't know what half of them are. Uh, hey, hey, Tony, how are you? It's David and Melanie. Oh, hey, Melanie, David, I am fantastic. How are you well, doing? Well, just to bring you up to speed, we talked about the fact that you worked at Harry Denton's and created the cable car and how you're in Vegas, and you have this amazing line of tagware. So we've kind of introed you that way, but now we've got you but, on. But now that we have hey. you, welcome to the show, and we can't wait to get started. Start. Well, first of all, congratulations on this show. This is so fantastic uh, for you and for the industry, and I'm just uh, honored to be on the show. Well, thank you so much, Tony. And, uh, you know, I've certainly talked to you a number of times on various other shows that, uh, that I've hosted in the past, so it's nice to be able to get you on on this one. We want to start at the beginning of, because you... Um, you, you, you uh, got your career. We always like to do the how did you get your, into the business. And your, and your mentor was your cousin, Helen David, at the Brass Bar. Right. Tell us about her. Yeah, Melanie. Um, I've spent the last 35 years of my life behind bars, and it all started at the Brass Real Bar in Port Huron, Michigan, uh, a little neighborhood bar that my cousin Helen David, God rest her soul, opened with her mother in 1937. So three years after the repeal of Prohibition, throws of the Great Depression, Helen's father dies. She's 21 years old, and her mother says, Helen, if we don't turn the ice cream parlor into a saloon, we're going to be broke. So on June 15, 1937, her and her mother, uh, two very strong women in this industry, opened the Brass Rail Bar, and she ran it for nearly 70 years. Wow. Wow. That's, that's amazing, a, and, and now you honor her. You honor her um, with a, a Helen David Relief Fund, and you are very supportive of women in the business, the bar business. We just really want to stress that you are really one of the biggest supporters of women in this business. So, tell us about um, why you created the Helen David Relief Fund. Well, um, and thank you, Moni. There are you know so many wonderful, strong women in this industry that I look up to and can you know consider mentors and peers and colleagues. Um, Helen, not only a strong woman who opened a bar uh, at a very early age in 1937 when women were you know not running saloons, uh, she was a two-time survivor of breast cancer and a big advocate towards the cause. She was a very philanthropic person. She she really believed that she you know was very fortunate and blessed and helped others less fortunate. Um, so in her memory, in her honor, um, I started on my 50th birthday five years ago the Helen David Relief Fund, which benefits bartenders and their families who have been affected by breast cancer. God bless you. That's just amazing. What a great way to do fifty. <laughs> Well, it's, uh, you know, it, like I said, I, I learned a lot of great lessons from Helen. Uh, you know, one of the famous was for Nicole Moore, you go first class. Uh, you only get out of a drink what you put into it. And really what we're serving behind the bar is hospitality. Uh, she in, instilled in me the, the art of hospitality and to treat every customer at the bar like you would a guest in your home. Uh, so I'm very, very thankful for those lessons. Uh, and that, but and that's, Yeah. 
and the, and and those three things that you just mentioned are really the cornerstones of being a bartender. They're 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 the most important things you could possibly know. You're you're you know it's all about the customer and what goes into the glass and and doing it the best you can. That's right. You know, I Dale DeGroff, you mentioned earlier, I think said it best. He said, you know, I don't go to bars, I go to bartenders, and and I really believe that sums it up as you said, David. Um, you know, I can make a Negroni probably as well as most bartenders, but you know, I choose to go out to a bar to have that interaction with the bartender, you know, that, that welcoming handshake and smile and um, how you doing and, you know, knows how the Blackhawks did and how the stock market closed. And, you know, that makes a great bar. Sure. I often tell you, you know, young bartenders, I can teach you to make a great Negroni. What I can't teach you is to be passionate and embracing and hospitable and, and humble about making that experience for your guests. You're right. That you know what? I'd rather go out and have a drink at a bar. It tastes better at a bar that has a friendly bartender than mixed at home. And that hospitality makes a huge difference. The graciousness, the caring, and it's it it makes your experience uh, better and want to return to that place. So you're right. No, absolutely. That's you know I think we've the, the industry is obviously as you both know over the last ten years exploded and it's been wonderful and it's an exciting time to be drinking in this country and you know young bartenders uh, uh, passionate and committed about being you know professional career bartenders unlike you know when I started in 1980 you tell someone you're a bartender and they would say well what do you want to do (laughs) I'm having a pretty good time being a bartender should I do something else and uh, but today it's just it's it's just amazing, but that I think you are born with that gift of hospitality, and that, and I think that's something that if you're blessed enough to have, the bar is a great place for you to be. Well, it's very true, and there's obviously some wonderful people in the in the bar industry these days, both young who who are really just starting to come up and really really taking it to heart to learn it the right way. What I want to do is. To kind of switch gears a little bit with you and talk about cocktails. You're really known for creating what I like to call signature cocktails and cocktail programs. Um, probably the most famous one that you ever created um, is called the Cable Car, uh, which was created uh, for a bar out in San Francisco. And you you have a process that you go through when you're creating cocktails. And I'd love to kind of pick your brain a little bit about what is your creative process that you go through when you're doing it and what are you looking for when you're making a new a new drink like that well thanks very much uh, david and you hit on it when i returned you know i i really saw my first cocktail menu when we opened harry denton's on stewart street uh in 1991 and that was just resurrecting some cocktails like a manhattan and old-fashioned a sidecar um, the first time I had a Negroni, uh, and that was the first time I saw a menu, very simple menu. And then I visited, I lived in New York, visited the Rainbow Room, met Dale. Wow, cocktail menu. Came back uh, in 1995, reopened the Starlight Room with Harry Denton, and wrote my first cocktail menu. Mm. So now you go into even a decent bar lounge cocktail lounge you're going to see a cocktail menu you know guests are asking for it and it should represent your establishment it should be well balanced between classic lost and forgotten gems and and original things that make your establishment a destination make make it unique and you mentioned the cable car uh 
Mencken once wrote that there'll never again be a totally original cocktail, just variations on those that have come before it. And I truly believe that. I think that everything that we invent or create today can be traced back to what Livio Laro and Armando Rosario in their new book, 12 Cocktails, kind of describe as the 12 different styles of cocktail. Sure. And that's the you know, the cable car was from that approach, was from the brandy crusta in the 1850s in New Orleans, base spirit, orange liqueur, uh, and citrus of some type, you know, which has given us the cosmopolitan, the white lady, the sidecar, the margarita. And I just, at the time, Captain Morgan's were really promoting their spiced rum. There really was no spiced rum category. And they said, can you create a drink featuring our rum? And I substituted the Cointreau for orange curacao to play into the richness and the spiciness of the rum, fresh lemon juice, and then I just, you know, dusted the rim with a little cinnamon and superfine sugar to tie in again with the spices in the rum itself. And uh, as you mentioned, it's become probably my best-known cocktail. And it's easy, David. You know, it's it's easy. Men like it. Women like it. Everyone can recreate it. And I think that's one of the problems that we see with some of the more esoteric drinks that are being created is they're not readily recreated in other establishments. I want people all over to drink my drinks. Well, uh, you know, so. you kind of you, you're <laughs> it's right. True. You, you, it's true. You hit on a point there. It's you know, you don't want to make something so difficult that people can't make it again at home. And I think, and I think it's very important for people to be able to um, embrace making their own cocktails if it's if it's something that they can do at home, you know, certainly they can get the ingredients these days if they want to. So, so if you can, if you're going to make a drink so difficult that they can't redo it or play with it at home, it, it becomes less interesting for them. So you're right. You should be. Or it. if somebody can recreate it, like, like a, a good recipe that would be recreated in another place. If people right. are doing it in another bar, you really wanted to follow the right recipe. It's like an omelet. There's a technique yeah. and you follow it and it makes it perfect. It's the same with the cocktail. Yeah, I absolutely. And since opening the Bellagio in 1998 to today, the cable car remains the number one requested recipe that the PR department there gets. Uh, so people do want to make the drink at home. Um, but, you know, David Emery's in The Fine Art of Mixing Drinks, his wonderful book. He basically breaks drinks down very simply to base spirit, modifiers, and accents. And I think if you follow that recipe and strive for balance, you celebrate the base spirit, which is where I always begin. And then, you know, my mom, God rest her soul, was an amazing cook. And she always says, Tony, never trust a skinny chef. You got to taste everything. So the that more you can taste, that you work up this encyclopedia of flavor profiles, like, oh, spiced rum, that's going to work really nice, you know, with ginger and honey, and, and you start playing with these uh, flavors, but, you know, as you said, you have to then put it in the glass, taste it, balance it, and balance is the key word, uh, and, you know, maybe it needs a little more acid, maybe it needs a little more sweetener, until you find something that is pleasing to the palate. Well, that's true. I think, you know, when I talk to any bartender in the world and ask them that I've talked to, and I've interviewed a lot over the years, including yourself, um, I talk to them and I say, what, what are the most, what's really the biggest key factor that you want to look for in a drink? And they always come back and say balance, mm -hmm. that it's got to have the right balance to it. You could have three, yeah. three ingredients, five ingredients, whatever it is, but it's always got to have, it always has to have a balance between the three of them that make them all mesh together. 
Yeah. So that the, yeah. you know that some of the parts uh, is more than the, you know, or the, the final product is more than the sum of the parts, and uh, and and balance is perfect. Yeah, it's a great descriptor. Speaking of base spirit, your most recent book is Vodka Distilled. Vodka is a spirit that has fans and detractors. Some like it pure, some like it flavored. You know, the reason I wrote Vodka Distilled was because of two parts. Um, one being that I think there's still a, a real kind of misconception among consumers on what vodka is. And, you know, if I answer right. that question, well, it's just vodka, all vodkas are the same. Well, let me take you through a tasting, and let's go through an array of vodkas that are made from different raw materials, stylistically different. And I'm not talking flavored vodkas at all, just straight vodkas, a celebration of vodka, which, again, in its simplest form, is a wonderful representation of the master distiller's art, because mm-hmm. vodka is out there naked. It doesn't hide behind flavoring, but botanicals, maturation. It really is the art of the distiller, and I often say it's what we leave in that defines the vodka as opposed to what we distill or filter out. So that was reason number one. And, you know, Charlotte Boise, another strong, wonderful woman in this business, once uh, I heard her say, you know, through deeper knowledge comes greater enjoyment. And I really believe the better we can get to know vodka, the better we'll enjoy it. But I also got a little frustrated with the bartending community at large, kind of turning their nose up at vodka. And I, I really don't know where this came from. Um, I don't remember vodka doing anything to anyone uh, other than maybe, <laughs> you know, bombarding us with all these crazy flavors from our childhood. But mm-hmm. to really understand and appreciate vodka, it takes a little bit of work. And uh, it's a lot easier just to dismiss it and say, oh, it wasn't here before Prohibition when all the great cocktails were either created or developed or you know, improved on. But if it was, ask yourself, would Jerry Thomas work with vodka? He probably and, uh, would have because, it's, because, it, because it's, it's like working with a, it's like working with a, with a clean canvas. You've got a. You've got the ability to build things that you can't build with other spirits. I I agree, and, and you yeah. know the, the better the the distillant, the better the foundation to elevate yeah. other products. Yeah. But one of the things I'd hoped to you know accomplish with the book was an appreciation for drinking vodka for vodka's sake. Just drinking vodka neat from the freezer. And when I was writing the book and I went to Sweden and Poland and Russia, and, uh, you know, we would go out and it wasn't necessarily a bottle of wine with dinner, but a bottle of vodka from the freezer. And, mm-hmm. you know, the food would, would all complement vodka. And it just was so civilized. And there was a romance to drinking this frozen vodka with pickled and salted and dried foods. And it just, it was really. And we, I don't think we've really embraced that uh, approach to drinking vodka in this country. Yes. No, we're busy tossing fruit juice in with it. Yeah. That's right. <laughs> and I tell you, <laughs> beautiful little glass of vodka from the freezer with some caviar. Not much uh, like it. Not, not much like it. <laughs> you, know, you know, it's funny you should talk about, you were talking about different types of vodka, and, and uh, I was privy to a tasting like that a number of years ago um, that was actually hosted by Absolute. And mm-hmm. they wanted people to, they were obviously touting Absolute and wanting to show its purity and its cleanliness, etc. But what they did was they, they lined up different vodkas from, that were made from different base ingredients, whether it was potato or weed or grape or whatever, whatever it was. And they were all very different from each yep. other. Mm-hmm. Um, and so when you say that a lot of people think of vodka as the neutral spirit, it really is anything but that. You're right. 
It really is, and I think the U.S. definition of a tasteless, colorless, odorless spirit has not done any favors to the category. And when I was doing my recent tour for Vodka Distilled, um, I went to 32 markets, and that's exactly how we taste it. We taste it blind, in the glass, not to say that this is better than this, but just to say they are different, and here's the characteristics to look for, like you said, from the winter wheat of Absolute or from the rye of Belvedere. Uh, and once you start to distinguish those nuances and subtleties, you're like, oh, okay, now I, I get it. And you start making notes in that book, and you're like, now, and again, through better knowledge comes deeper enjoyment. Well, we agree, and I think everybody needs to, you know, try vodka, neat, naked, always, and crisp and cool to really understand it, because it is malaligned, and people give it a bad rap. We've got time for about one question. Um, globally, where have you been recently that's shaking up your spirit mix, and why? I, I got to tell you, I am so excited about Peru. I, I just got back from Peru, Melanie, and the culture there, the way they embrace their national spirit, Pisco, the celebration of the harvest and what goes into making it is... I can only compare it to mezcal. You know, it's just really a, such a gorgeous brandy. And we still, again, in this country are struggling with embracing Pisco. And it has a great drink that goes... Every time I make a Pisco sour melony for someone, they're just like, oh, this is so beautiful. It's, it's like drinking a flower. Um, it's just a, such a beautiful distillate. And I really, I, I'm, I'm, I'm doing a, a seminar at Tales uh, in July, uh, The Great Escape. And it really, it's to better explore and understand, again, the aromatic and non-aromatic grapes of Peru that make up this wonderful distillate. Oh, that's great. And for those listening, that's Tales of the Cocktail in New Orleans in July, which everybody in the industry goes to. Well, we want to go to Peru, too. We were just like salivating over an article so because it's having a culinary revolution. And our prior guest, Letty Teague, said, you know, step out of your comfort zone and be adventurous. It's the same with spirits, right? Absolutely it is. And, and I think we've seen that more now than ever. Uh, the micro distilling industry that's going on in this country is, is huge. Uh, you know, I'm sure you get bottles sent to you all the time as I do and it's just really wonderful. I mean, we have absinthe back again since 2007, so great absinthe cocktails can be made again. Um, a lot of the products that disappeared after Prohibition are back. I mean, bitters are back. And there's so much wonderful stuff happening behind the American bar. I just, you know, I, I just love the journey, man. Yeah, it's a, it's a wonderful, it's a wonderful time to be involved in it. And there, you're right. There's so much great stuff going on, and there's so much creativity going on behind the bar these days. Mm-hmm. It's just, it's wonderful to see. And so, really uh, what's the, in the U.S.? One last question: What city, other than Las Vegas, San Francisco, New Orleans, and, and New York, what's your uh, hot bar destination that we should all be flying to or driving to? Well, it's so funny, Melanie, you say that because, you know, it was New York and San Francisco. Those are the two places as, as things will start to, you know, if you, I, I, this I don't feel is a trend, but as trends begin, um, and I travel all around the country. I mean, I used to go to Miami all the time, still do. It's hard to find a good mojito in Miami. <laughs> now, some of the greatest cocktail bars that I've been to, you know, the Region Cocktail Club, uh, the Broken Shaker down in Miami, but now that's spreading into Orlando and what Armando Rosario doing there and and tampa debbie peak another strong woman is just going down there to to do a a class with southern wine spirits so she's relocating and what's happening with chicago you know bridget albert 
another strong one did in for that city and Chicago is on fire. I, I would I would definitely jump on a plane for Chicago ASAP. But even places like Detroit, you know, I'm from Michigan and Detroit is having this revival and doing some great stuff with craft beer and craft distilling and, and great cocktails. So I think you can pretty much throw a dart at a map and be able to find a cocktail bar in that city today. Well, that's a great strategy. And you know what? It's time to wrap, Tony Abgown. And we just really want to say to you, Tony, and everybody listening, go out, have a drink, tip your bartender well, enjoy it, and let people know what a great time you had so more people will visit the bar. Bartenders work really hard. And you are an incredible example of what you can take with the profession and build it into something really special and help others and train others. So thank you for all you do. Thank you so much, Melanie. David, love being on your show. Can't wait to be on again. And we'll see you in New Orleans for Tales of the Cocktail. We we look forward to it, Tony. And thanks so much for coming on. And, folks, it's Tony Abuganum, the modern mixologist. And uh, you can find him at modernmixologist.com. Thanks again, Tony. And we will see you in New Orleans. Folks, this is the... Folks, this is David Ransom and Melanie Young on the Connected Table Live, and we're wrapping up for this week, but we'll be back with another delicious show next week. And in the meantime, please feel free to find us on iHeartRadio. Take care now. Have a good weekend.